0: Well, I want to invite everyone to open your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke 10, as we are um, in our series, Love Your Neighbor. And we open the series looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we will close. Last, next week we'll be uh, in the series too, but we'll close the last a sermon um, in this uh, pivotal passage as well. I'm going to read our text, Luke 10. I'm actually going to begin in verse 23. Jesus here, he's on the road uh, in Luke 9 through chapter 9 through chapter 19. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And here we have some critical teachings where he's unpacking what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. And in verse 23, after sending out 72 witnesses uh, into the community, uh, we pick up. Jesus then turning to the disciples... He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This private declaration of Jesus to his disciples. And then we have this public exchange, picking up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus responds with this He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, we've been in the sermon series, Love Your Neighbor. And we've seen that loving our neighbor requires, first of all, knowing who our neighbor is. A Jacob opened preaching from this passage, and one of the things we learned that's unmistakably clear is that your neighbor is anyone in need. Regardless of proximity, regardless of cultural or ethnic difference, we are bound to love our neighbor, anyone in need. We've also seen that loving our neighbor requires loving God, that if we charge into doing good deeds without a conviction rooted in who God is and loving Him, we won't sustain it. Loving someone requires uh, ministering and caring and loving in a particular place, in a particular time. We saw that loving our neighbors requires being hospitable, opening up our home and lives to people. And last week, Mike preached about how loving our neighbors requires being a faithful witness to speak the good news of the gospel, to engage in relationship that proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, the heaven that Jesus is talking about right here. Loving our neighbor. We have talked about the actions required in loving those in need. And this week, I want us to uh, take a particular vantage point in the conversation. Uh, We've been talking practically about what loving our neighbor looks like, and anytime we engage in these issues, it requires a particular perspective. And uh, anytime you're flying in an airplane, especially over a city you're familiar with, you see a unique perspective of the place that you live. Recently, I was flying to Columbus, and a lot of times when you fly, fly over Columbus, you uh, pass over the city, and you can see the stadium. I've seen in flying over Columbus my neighborhood and community, and there's this unique perspective. And I imagine when I'm flying over the city, oh man, I can just picture little Jay just right down there, right? Walking on the street, doing what he typically does in day-to-day living. And a lot of times our perspective on life is rooted in just the day-to-day living experiences. A lot of times loving our neighbor requires that mindset. What do we do in the practical here and now? But this morning, I want us to take a larger perspective. I want us to go above the city, so to speak, to consider what's the big picture that God is calling us to do and how that shapes who we are as a community. When we step back and look at the challenges in our world, we see division. We live in a multicultural world. We live in a multicultural city. And that often leads us to, in the practical day-to-day expressions of life, divides. And so in this coming season, I want to invite you personally to consider how is God calling you to engage some of the divisions in our city and world. And I want to invite all of us as a church to consider what, is, what can that mean, what implications may that have for us as a community? Because as we take the big picture perspective, we see Jesus, where he is going. Luke writes the gospel of Luke, but then it picks up in the book of Acts. And Acts begins in chapter 1, verse 6. After Jesus' resurrection, after the cross and resurrection, the disciples gather. We see here in verse 6, the passage will be on the screen. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're wondering. They've been hoping that Jesus was the Messiah, the king who would restore God's kingdom they're wondering, is now the time? It's now the time, Jesus. But they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was going to bring. And Jesus says to them, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but here's what you will experience, disciples, in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We see the big picture, perspective, of how God wants to minister and where he wants to minister. It is a global, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. That is the church that Jesus establishes. Jesus establishes a multi-ethnic church. And the story of Acts continues about how it begins in Jerusalem. And this is, and Jesus, uh, Luke here, when he records it, it basically is the outline of the book. It begins in Jerusalem. Then Judea and Samaria and then to the nations. And the, the entire New Testament is about that working out. The epistles that the apostle Paul writes, he's writing to churches, experiencing the struggle of different cultures. How does the gospel speak into it? And how does it shape it? This is our heritage, friends. This is where God is calling us today to minister just like them in a world with divisions and considering how the gospel can bring healing. And so this morning, as we consider how to engage a culturally divided world, I want us to become a little more woke, a little more aware about the ways in which God wants to grow us and the ways in which we can engage. If we would engage like the early church did, If we want to truly engage in these issues, what do we need to know? What do we need to become aware of? How does the gospel shape our perspective? And we'll do it by looking again in a fresh way at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to share four four ways we can grow in awareness to address the cultural divides. The first is this. Loving across cultural divides requires awareness of the authoritative voices in our life. Our question here is this, who shapes how you relate to people who are different than you? What are the authoritative voices in your life? In Luke 10, we have a parable, and we have a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus. And I want to make two observations about their exchange. First, both the lawyer and Jesus appealed to the same God, as the basis of their authority. Both the lawyer and Jesus, both are claiming God the Father as their authority. The lawyer, uh, we know, is a Pharisee and a part of the first century Pharisaic movement, and there's a common misunderstanding about the Pharisees. A Pharisee wasn't an occupation, it wasn't a role. The Pharisee was a religious party, if you will, and it was a religious party founded on three core convictions. First, the conviction that the Torah was the revealed word of God, that the Torah, the law of God, was God's given scripture on how to live. Second, that the Torah must be interpreted within a strict framework. So someone could not engage the Torah without coming to it with a certain theological grid of how it should be read. And third, Pharisees believed that the scriptures ought to shape every area of life that the Torah is God's word, that the Torah should be interpreted rightly, and that the Torah should shape how we live and engage. Probably many of us would feel very comfortable <laughs> right here. Uh, and so uh, the Pharisees were the first century conservatives. A conservative wants to preserve a particular way of living and a particular way of relating, and it's not, not wrong, of course, that's, but that's what the Pharisees were. So you have this lawyer, Pharisee, and he meets Jesus. Now, Jesus, in the first century, he was, he was influential. He had a crowd with him almost everywhere he went. And his reputation would have preceded him. This lawyer surely would have heard of Jesus. I mean, after all, at this time, they didn't have the Internet. And so the way of hearing about events was gossip. And so people would talk about what's happening. And the word of who Jesus was would have reached the lawyer, and and he would have heard a few things about Jesus. First of all, he would have heard that Jesus was often challenged the Pharisee leaders and the Pharisee perspective of God. Jesus would say things. He would reinterpret Scripture in some ways that Pharisees weren't comfortable with. Jesus would say things like, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you've heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you, dot, dot, dot. Jesus was reinterpreting, or he was interpreting the scripture in a unique way that made the Pharisees uncomfortable. And this often encouraged people to live in ways and relate with people in ways that were very uncomfortable. Jesus was popular among many, but he was not very popular with the Pharisees. Jesus was, as my world missions professor and now president of Denver Seminary, Mark Young said, he was your first century progressive. We have a first century progressive meeting a first century conservative. And I think this needs to sober us up in many ways. The Pharisee here appeals to God's word as his authority. And yet he misses what God's word is all about. As Christians, we must be humble and we must consider are there some ways in which we may be think that we're experts about the Bible but miss the heart of what the Bible is all about. Jesus in the parable of the good Samaritan, he's wanting to zero right in here. He's wanting to say if you want to understand the law of God, it must lead you and compel you To love others, especially those who are different. So we see both appeal to God. Also, a second observation in their exchange. There is a test of affinity to God's word. There is a test between a lawyer and Jesus about who is more credible. Who is more credible when it comes to interpreting God's word. It it begins, uh, the lawyer says, the lawyer seeking to test Jesus. Now this lawyer, as we mentioned, he's a Pharisee, but also as a lawyer, he would have been probably the most influential and powerful figure in his community. He would have been a respected man. He would have been a man of status. He was a man who was a lawyer, and not just a, a lawyer in a general sense, but a lawyer who was an expert in the Torah an expert in God's word, and he wants to test Jesus. He asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it was common in these exchanges. There was a formula on how people would engage in these issues in a public way. Uh, someone would start with a broad question that would lead someone to respond in a, with a broad answer. And then they'd want to get to a specific challenge. And so they would follow that up with a specific question in hope of, hopes of testing or pinning someone toward a specific answer. And the lawyer, as an authoritative figure, wants to test Jesus in this public exchange. And so he asks him a broad question, but what does Jesus do? Jesus flips the script. <laughs> the lawyer is wanting to test Jesus and Jesus doesn't play his cultural game. He flips the script on him and asks him a question. He puts it back on the lawyer. See, what we have here is a power play between the lawyer wanting to put Jesus in his place, wanting to test him, wanting to root him out, and Jesus, who uses the exchange to illustrate his authority over the lawyer. And it closes, of course, with Jesus commanding the lawyer, asking him, who was the neighbor to this man? You go and do likewise. Likewise. One of the things we learn here, and that is absolutely essential when it comes to engaging in cross-cultural work, Jesus must be an authoritative voice in our life. And so my question for us, who are the authoritative voices? Who shapes your perspective of how you relate and engage cross-culturally? There are obvious, uh, obvious voices. It might be a political party and a political platform. It might be a political political convictions that are expressed in various media outlets. Now, one of the things Jesus, if we're going to engage cross culturally and be faithful to the way Jesus is calling us to do it, he must be our authoritative voice. Is Jesus an authoritative voice in your? engagement cross-culturally? Are you upholding to a particular party? Is that your authoritative voice? We also see that loving across cultural divides requires awareness of the cost and discomforts of cross-cultural love. In our parable, we have three men engage this Jewish man who is beaten and left for dead. In order to love this man, there is going to be a cost. We see first a priest come upon him. Now, as Jacob pointed out when he preached on this, they would have been coming on this road from Jerusalem. And so most likely the priest would have recently offered sacrifices to God. He would have led God's people in offering sacrifices. And so seeing this man beaten, he would have wanted to avoid him because he he could have been declared ceremonially unclean. The priest did not want The cost of being unclean. And then we have the Levite. Now, the Levite possibly was in the entourage with the priest, a group of people walking together. And he probably didn't help this person because he didn't want to disrespect the priest. The Levite did not want the cost of jeopardizing his social connections and influence. The Samaritan, though, helps At great cost. It costs him time. It costs him money and resources. There is great cost in loving across cultural divides. It will be costly and it will be uncomfortable. But following Jesus always requires cost. It always requires engaging in a degree of discomfort. We see this earlier in Luke 9. In the same context, as Jesus and his disciples are on the road and chapter 9, verse 57. I want to invite you to look there. Uh, Jesus is launching on this journey to Jerusalem, and we see three people coming to want to follow Jesus, and each of them leave going their own way. In verse 57, as they were going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Apparently, this person in following Jesus didn't think that it would require staying in somewhere uncomfortable or not having anywhere to sleep. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, Jesus. <laughs> um, we have two other people seemingly wanting to follow Jesus, but they had other priorities. They didn't prioritize following him. One of the things we see here is that Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow him, he must be central, and he must be the defining priority in your life. And there's a part of me that when I, when I read this, I think, Jesus, you need to calm down, <laughs> Okay. Jesus, we're, we're trying to build a movement here. And, you know, there's probably a little more, a better way to put some of this. We want to get people on our team. Jesus, why are you doing this? Jesus, you need a PR helper, okay? You need to correct your, your messaging here. Maybe rather than talking about not having anywhere to sleep, just talk about the future kingdom and, you know, it's going to heaven. That'll, be, that'll get them with us, Jesus. To which I could imagine Jesus responding, yeah, but you know what? They might not have anywhere to sleep. Jesus is illustrating that if we're following him, and especially if we're following him and engaging in cross-cultural relationships, there will be discomfort. And if I can just be honest, a lot of times as a pastor, I wuss out in this regard. I want to lower the bar of following Jesus as, I want to put it as low as possible. And what happens when that shapes our culture as a community and as a church too much is we think we're following Jesus. Like the lawyer who had a lot of God talk, a lot of Torah talk, a lot of verses. We talk about God and we miss living out the way he's calling us to engage in the world. And as a church, we bring our cultural perspectives and our tendencies. And one of our cultural perspectives is we live in a consumeristic culture. And so we bring that into how we relate to God. We bring that into our perspective on what it means to be the community of God. We bring that into how we engage as a church. We come here. We want to follow Jesus. But we want music that appeals to our preferences. We come, we want to follow Jesus. We want sermons that are funny and deep and present Jesus as a nice guy and maybe a little challenging, but not too uncomfortable. We want friendships to be free of drama and awkwardness and discomfort. We want a worship gathering that fits our sensibilities so there might be a little emotion. We might clap from time to time, but we want it to be too emotional. I mean, who you know. We want a calling that's There, but not too high. And here's the key. Here's the key. We want just enough Jesus that we feel a little better about ourselves, but not enough that it calls us to press into the costs and discomforts that He wants to bring in our life. Friends, if we're going to love across cultures, We need a theology of discomfort. We need to recognize that one of the ways God wants to work in our life is he wants to bring awkward, challenging, different voices, perspectives, and experiences, and that is for our good. It is for our good. As a church, we fail you. We fail you. If all you hear is the music you want to hear, the sermon that agrees with all your perspectives and doesn't challenge you, if all you get is your comforts, the coffee you want, the kids' ministry that's perfect for how you want, if all we offer you is a church experience that just agrees with your cultural sensibilities, then we fail. We need a theology of discomfort. We need to recognize that God calls us to enter into the discomforts of our lives, and sometimes we will feel disoriented. Like a man with nowhere to lay his head. God wants to bring some discomfort. Thirdly, loving across cultural divides requires awareness of the presence and power of culture. Now, Jesus, he's very culturally aware. He he uses this story, this parable, to illustrate something powerful. He understands this lawyer and the community around him have various cultural convictions. He understands the Samaritans and what they present to the first century Jews. Jesus is very culturally aware. And when we read the Bible, reading the Bible well requires being aware of the culture in which it is written. We acknowledge the place and power of cultures, but we often we often miss the place and power of the culture in which we reside in, as Jacob prayed earlier, or mentioned earlier, we're sending a team to Kalimpong, India, uh, to uh, continue and invest in our relationship there. And I'm leading this team. And one of the things we have for the eight of us going, uh, we, we require everyone to take the Myers-Briggs personality profile. Has anyone here taken the Myers-Briggs personality? Yeah, some of us. Okay. And it basically evaluates: are you extrovert or introvert? Are you highly intuitive or sensing and these things? And, and I know there's some people like that kind of thing, others don't. The goal is not to put anyone in a box, but the goal is to grow in self-awareness. Because when you enter into a different culture, there's certain pressures and tensions, and we're tired because you're on a different time zone. And one of the things that can throw off a mission trip like that is when people are not aware of who they are, not aware of the others, and we end up just fighting and bickering when you're in a stressful situation. Self-awareness is very important in engaging in healthy relationships to understand who we are and our tendencies and our convictions. The same is true for cultural awareness. Just like we need to know ourselves and our tendencies, it is important to understand and know our culture what it is, and how it shapes us. But there's a problem. Often we see the cultural peculiarities of cultures not like our own. When we go to India, we will see differences. It'll be very clear. (laughs) But we often miss our own cultural convictions and the power of it, especially for majority culture. We just assume, for those in majority culture, in America that is white people, We just assume that our way is the right way. Not culturally conditioned, not culturally shaped, just the way it is. Uh, Daniel Hill, who wrote a a great book called White Awake, I highly recommend it. He's a pastor of a multi-ethnic church in Chicago. He uses a number of uh, examples to illustrate this point. One, I, I thought was really good. He talked about how at seminary, they have classes on theology. You have um, doctrine of God, salvation and sin and heaven, classes on theology, important at a seminary. But then in the hopes of being diverse, the seminary also had a a class, an elective, titled African American Theology, Latin Theology. You notice that the theological, the core required theological courses aren't called Anglo-American Theology. It's just Theology. This illustrates a point. We often in majority culture just assume that our way is the right way, and we misunderstand the ways in which our cultural convictions and preferences shape us. So it's important for us to be cultural culturally aware. There are various cultural expressions. I want to share just a few. And these come from a book called Many Colors, uh, which is in your resources. I highly recommend it. A few cultural expressions. And these aren't right or wrong. These are just the way it is. Uh, One, individual versus group orientation. Uh, Individual orientation makes decisions individually. It's about personal expression. Uh, Group orientation makes decisions as a group, uh, conforming to social norms. Uh, Different cultures, individual versus group orientation. Another difference may be guilt versus shame. In culture, you, guilt uh, sees you make a mistake. You might make a mistake, but in shame cultures, you are a mistake. A difference between equality and hierarchy. In equality cultures, we offer our own opinion. Um, a pastor, for example, might just to be a person like anyone else. In hierarchical cultures, we respect the status of leaders. Your pastor, you would call pastor, Pastor J, Reverend J. See some of the differences. Another difference is direct versus indirect relating. In direct relating, we focus on what is said. In indirect relating, we focus on how it is said. And another last difference is task versus relationship. In task-based cultures, you focus on keeping time. Don't want to be late. And the goal is to provide accurate information. In... Uh, relationship-based cultures, the focus on building relationship, and the goal is creating an environment where people can connect. Different expressions among different cultures. And we see this play out in the church. As I mentioned, the way which we the title we give to a pastor. Also, you can see the nature of how we view sin. Some cultures, sin is seen as simply individual breaking of God's commands, it's more personal. Other cultures, sin is seen to be more corporate, more social. In a worship gathering, uh, we might be very concerned about the time. <laughs> we have that here at Scarlet City. The time, if, we're, if we go too long, it's sinful. Right? Other cultural expressions, it's more open-ended. We can see it in the, ser- in the church by how sermons are done. There's a sermon about rooting in information, and we come and we want to learn, engage information. It's not a really good sermon if I don't learn something new, learn something new about God. Or do we have sermons that seek to engage the heart and feelings and emotions of our experience? And you may be wondering, okay, so which is the right way? It's not about a right way. The gospel speaks into both, all different cultural expressions, and that leads to our fourth and final way in which we can grow to love cross-culturally by becoming aware. It requires awareness of our need for other cultural perspectives. Awareness of our need of other cultural voices and perspectives. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, I love this. Jenny pointed this out this week as we were talking about it. Notice in the parable. The religious insiders, the Jews, they are the ones in need of help. The Bible scholars, the religious insiders, the people of influence are the ones in need of the Samaritan. The religious outsider shows how to more faithfully follow God. Isn't that interesting? God uses the religious outsider so that we can better understand God's will and desire. We need the perspective of people outside of our culture. In order to more faithfully follow God, in order to more faithfully understand God's desires, in order to more faithfully live out our faith, as we hope to do, we must have the perspective of people outside of our particular culture. Earlier we talked about individual versus group, direct versus indirect, task versus relationship. We need the experiences of people outside our cultural perspective to have a better grip on how the gospel can speak into some of our blind spots. We all have cultural blind spots. One example that is a common tension today, and we referenced it earlier, is even just how to relate to God uh, some in an individualistic culture and perspective, we see our walk with God as being very personal. So we want personal quiet times and, and a vertical faith. We're very concerned when we think of following God. We think about uh, spiritual disciplines of prayer and walking with God and relating with God. But sometimes we miss the horizontal implications yeah, you know, there's a temptation for some to see walking with God as purely personal, and others to see walking with God as merely social. And so the question is then which is it? The answer is both. Both. In our parable, Jesus, he's talking about relating to God. And when we relate to God rightly, that will have implications on how we engage socially. The point being how we engage, we need people from different perspectives to shape our perspective of the gospel and how we live rightly with God. And friends, this point, the point of our need of other cultural perspectives is absolutely essential. And as we close, I want to highlight two challenges that this brings for us. As I mentioned earlier, I want to invite you into a season of exploring how God might be leading you personally to engage across cultural divides? What can it look like for you personally to have a multi-ethnic life? And we as a church are exploring and talking and praying about what the implications may mean for us as a community. And as I and our leaders have been walking on this journey for years now, this isn't new, uh, for years now, God has brought some great voices, some mentors to help us along the way, and they've highlighted two challenges that I want to share with us as we go. Two challenges of pursuing a diverse, multi-ethnic community. First, pursuing a diverse community without diverse personal relationships will do damage. If we are able to have, in God's grace, one day, a community here on a Sunday morning that is culturally and ethnically diverse, but we aren't investing in living out that diversity in our homes, it will only perpetuate division. God is calling you and me to pursue multi-ethnic relationships. And here's the challenge of this. Our culture pushes us toward sameness. If we just go with the flow of life, we will often wake up, Surrounded by people who just agree with us, who just look like us, who have the same cultural values that we do. This requires a high degree of intentionality. But when we do, when we open ourselves up to these relationships, we can see that it begins to shape us, it begins to challenge us. It be, we, there is a joy in it. We, we look at the events of our world through a new lens. Now we find ourselves maybe Lamenting things we didn't even know were a problem. We find ourselves engaging maybe in the political discourse in a little more nuanced way, acknowledging some of the implications that laws have for others. It requires diverse relationships. And so I want to invite you to consider what that can look like for you. How you can invest In cross-cultural places that can lead to cross-cultural relationships. And to initiate those relationships, to invite people into your home, to build friendships cross-culturally. And and this again is where I think as a church, sometimes we've missed it. You know, one of the great one of the best opportunities for cross-cultural relationships is in your local church. And so we hope to, as a community, to pursue some change so that here, so that The friendships you form in your faith community can be opportunities of building relationships outside of the church with people who are different. Lastly, second challenge. First challenge is diverse church without diverse relationships will fail, will do damage. And lastly, a second way a diverse church can do damage, pursuing diversity without justice and empowerment is false diversity. I have two mentors of mine. They'll both be on the panel next week. As we've explored the issue, Kevin Dudley, a pastor, African American pastor, shared how multi ethnic churches often are just gentrification. It's often just minority people assimilating to majority culture, of which they are called to do all the time, without choice. Uh, Dr. Corey Edwards, she lives in Clintonville, a prof- professor at Ohio State and believer who has researched, published research on multi-racial churches, wealth of wisdom, she put it well. She says, if you don't have justice, and what she means by that is equality and unity, if you don't have justice, you cannot have genuine diversity. What happens is to relieve some sense of, maybe it's white guilt, or because we we read Revelation and we see the big picture of where God is going, this future heaven that is diverse. We want diversity. And yet, we don't pursue justice. And we don't empower and raise up minority leaders. And, here, and I want you to hear this. In order to satisfy some guilt or reflect a future kingdom, we ask minorities to join us. We must join them. We, in majority culture, must join them. This means growing in awareness, celebrating a heritage, and elevating people to leadership who are not white. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. Our neighbor is anyone in need, regardless of age, ethnicity, or culture. How is God calling you to enter into the cultural divisions? Will you join us? Can we collectively in this season explore and consider what are some of the ways we can learn to more faithfully engage across the cultural divides? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God for the nations. Reminded in Acts that your multicultural movement, multi-ethnic community began in Jerusalem. And here we are as a result of spirit-empowered witnesses who have crossed cultural divides. Here we are thousands of years later, thousands of miles away. People with the privilege of hearing your good news. And it is good news, God, that through the finished work of your Son, we may be united with you and the implication that that good news breaks down barriers and walls. Lord, breathe fresh life into our soul. Give us the courage, the courage to be aware Send us into a world with the good news of the gospel. May it be a tangible, may it be tangible in our lives, tangible in our community. And God, we need your spirit to empower us because in our own strength, we cannot do this. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.